Good evening, and welcome to the January 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, my guest tonight is a blast from my past, someone I went to high school with and haven't seen or talked to in almost 40 years. I saw Mark Schuf's first after high school on 60 Minutes, where Ed Bradley was interviewing him about an investigative report he wrote about the AIDS crisis in Africa in the early 1990s. I had no idea while we were in school that he was gay, but always knew he was a really smart guy. Mark went on to win two Pulitzer Prizes in journalism, including one for reporting in New York as he witnessed the attack on September 11th. To say his last 40 years have been extraordinary is an understatement, and I can't wait to share our reunion with you tonight. So stay with us. It's all coming up next right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, January 26th, 2020. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of January 26th, 2020. During an event celebrating National Adoption Month, Vice President Mike Pence praised a proposed Trump administration rule that would allow federal funding to flow to adoption agencies that refuse to place children with LGBTQ families, among others. Pence said at the event held at the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, quote, we reversed a rule implemented in the closing days of the last administration that jeopardized the ability of faith-based providers to serve those in need by penalizing them for their deeply held religious beliefs and will stand with faith-based organizations to support adoption, end quote. Pence said that he couldn't be more proud of the decisive action taken by the president. Meanwhile, more than 100,000 foster children are awaiting adoption, according to government data but a constellation of religious agencies refused to consider same-sex parents when placing these children. Shortly before the end of his second term, President Barack Obama changed non-discrimination rules governing adoption agencies to expand the definition of groups protected against discrimination to include LGBTQ people. Trump's proposed rule will undo that. And LGBTQ parents are much more exposed to the adoption and foster care system than straight parents. A 2018 report from the Williams Institute at UCLA's School of Law found that one in five of the estimated 114,000 same-sex couples raising children in the United States are raising adopted or foster children. This is significantly higher than 3% of the heterosexual couples doing the same thing. And in Tennessee, the state approved a state measure that would allow adoption agencies to refuse to work with families if they claim that working with those families would, quote, violate the agency's written religious or moral conviction policies, end quote. House Bill 836, which was approved by the Tennessee House last year, is the first bill that the state Senate considered in 2020, and it passed by a vote of 20 to 6. All five of the Democrats in the state Senate voted against the bill, along with one Republican. The bill now goes to Governor Bill Lee, who has already said that he will sign the bill into law. And also last week, LGBTQ Nation reports that 44 House Democrats have submitted a letter to the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, formally asking them to release all transgender detainees from their custody. The letter asserts that ICE's detainment and judicial procedures are disproportionately harming trans people, citing recent violence of rampant sexual abuse of trans inmates. The letter reads, quote, The United States is bound by domestic and international laws to protect, not punish, vulnerable populations escaping persecution. 
We demand that ICE abide by these laws by immediately bringing facilities, detaining transgender individuals into compliance, and by arranging for release of transgender individuals at risk of sexual abuse and assault in ICE custody, end quote. There's only one facility explicitly for transgender people in ICE custody located in Milan, New Mexico. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. But I don't know what to do. My guest tonight is Mark Schufs. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and leads the investigative journalism program at the University of Southern California Annenberg School of Journalism. Over his 30-year career, Mark edited Chicago's Lesbian and Gay Weekly, the Windy City Times, as it successfully crusaded for gay rights. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on AIDS in Africa at New York's famed alternative newspaper, The Village Voice, and he shared a second Pulitzer Prize at the Wall Street Journal for reporting from ground zero on the 9-11 attacks. His other achievements include founding the investigative reporting unit at BuzzFeed. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Mark is a friend from high school. We were in marching band together almost 40 years ago now, and I'm really excited to have him with us tonight. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, it's so exciting to talk with you. I mean, we were just talking off air about how many literal decades it's been. Um, That's right. And you and I have witnessed independently just an incredible amount of history in our lives. Yep. We're old, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good. I'm not ready to admit that at all. I'm not ready to admit it. But, you know, we went to high school together and I certainly had my experience in high school. And it was a very different time. I mean, there were no gay straight alliances. If you were even rumored or thought to be gay, you were just at the bottom of the barrel. And it was something we never, we never talked about. Um, I know what my experience was, but what was it like for you? Well, I remember I was thinking about this when you, after you contacted me, and there were a couple of um, things that I remember about high school. One, I definitely remember that nobody talked about, except for one kid in the band, and I've been racking my brains to remember his name. He was a skinny kid, and he was older than uh, we were. He was like an upperclassman. And I remember him saying, and he was sort of picked on anyway because he was, you know, he was skinny and he wasn't athletic. And, and he, he said that, like, gay should be treated the same as everybody else. He was in favor of gay rights. And he said that. And I had the distinct impression. I don't I, I've lost touch with him. Obviously, I can't even unfortunately, to my embarrassment, I cannot remember his name. But but I had the distinct impression that he was not gay. That he had sort of come to this as a matter of principle and felt it was important to say it. Wow. And that made a huge impression on me. And the other thing I remember from when we were in high school was the assassination of Harvey Milk. Yeah. And before the assassination of Harvey Milk, I remember his election. I remember seeing a news clip of him on, you know, whatever the local news, TV news was. And... And recognizing that, you know, this person had been elected and, you know, his line, of course, was, you know, you got to give that kid in wherever hope. And and he did give me hope. Mm. Um, And so those are those are two positive experiences. And what I would say is that just there was this blank. Right. There was no discussion. 
you know, I think when, when people called you, forgive my language here, but when people called you a faggot or, or something similar, a lot of times they didn't even fully realize what it meant. That was right. just like the lowest thing they could call you. And they, they hadn't actually processed what, what it meant to be gay or lesbian. Right. And so I, I think it was for me, and I'm not saying this was your experience or other people's experience, but it was just kind of this, this night. And then there were, you know, a couple of pinprick stars up in the sky, you know, like this kid who defended gay rights and Harvey Milk and a few other things. And some sense that things were shifting um, by at least by the time that I left high school. And not in high school, definitely not in high school, but or in the world around us that there yeah. that there was the rumblings of a change. Yeah, and I have I have a sense of of a memory around, you know, reading the headlines about Harvey Milk, and of course having gotten into law enforcement super early during my high school years when he was assassinated, that really resonated with me, especially because of of Dan White's background. Um, yes. I, I didn't see those stars. I, I have no recollection of anything positive about being gay in high school. And certainly that was really emphasized by my experience in the police department because that was extremely homophobic right from the very start. Um, yes. And I think that that made it more difficult for you, Greg. I probably. Mean, you know, the, without stereotyping because of course there are many people in law enforcement who have a different point of view but but it can be a macho it can be a macho culture and of course. It certainly at that time could be a homophobic culture yeah and for someone who wanted to to serve the public through law enforcement who was gay that would be you know you had to sacrifice much more than the normal police officer did yeah, perhaps back then. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right about that. And again, that was late 70s, early 80s. There just was no conversation in schools at all. Uh, oh, definitely not. About that. No one talked about it. None of our teachers talked about Nothing. it. None of our, 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 our counselors talked about it. Uh, you know, to the extent that this one student stands out in my mind because he's the only student that I recall talking about it in a, in a positive uh, way, um, I mean, there there was not a discussion of there was not a positive discussion of homosexuality or being gay on in 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 high school. There just right. was not. Did band feel like the whole band environment feel like a safe place for you to be during high school? You know, I think that I dealt with my sexuality by simply compartmentalizing it, mm, so by I. just yeah. walling it off. So. As I began, you know, as I, I don't know, maybe junior, certainly senior year, I knew that there was something different about me, but I had just walled that part of myself off. Mm. And so it wasn't that I felt that band was a safe space. Um, that is not how I would describe it. Um, it was just that um, I think I got through high school by focusing on sports which i loved and my schoolwork and um by not thinking about it yeah yeah what sports did so you play i don't, I I don't remember that part what did you play i swam uh, oh and I that's right polo, so that's I was right the captain of the swim team and yep. the captain of the water polo team 
along with uh, Bart Ebbinghaus. I don't know if you remember Bart. I remember the name. Um, he was a great swimmer. Uh, he was our goalie in water polo. Wow. Do you know that that's almost 40 years ago? <laughs> no. Yes. I went to our... I guess it was our 25th reunion. Yeah. I think it was our 25th reunion. You're and, a better man than uh, I. Uh, maybe it was our 30th reunion. I'm, I'm so bad with, with this, with numbers and dates and things like that. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it was a long time ago. <laughs> we graduated in 1981. We, we did. We did. And clearly, yeah. you know, went our different ways. Um, I took the law enforcement route. Where did you go? What was next for you then? So what was next? So I went to college uh, and I majored in, of all things, philosophy, which, you know, has very little practical value. But it was a great major, actually, because it made me it, it, it made me think and it made me write. Mm-hmm. And so for the things that I wanted to do and ended up doing in my career, that was fantastic. Um, but when I graduated from college, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I. um I kind of bounced around a little bit. I waited tables. I, I wrote grants for nonprofit associations. And I had come out in high school. I'm sorry, I'd come out in college. And so I, I knew at this point that I was, was gay and I wanted to come home to the Bay Area to, to let my parents know and to kind of, um, you know, usher them through that transition because I knew they would have to get get used to it and get comfortable with it. So I moved back to the Bay Area. And then I began to write for what was then called the Lesbian and Gay Press, and that would be called the LGBTQ Press. Um, At the time, I wrote for the San Francisco Sentinel, which Mm. was a weekly newspaper. Um, You know, this is before the Internet, so there was no website. Right. Um, And then through that, uh, in a completely crazy bit of luck, I got a job editing the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Weekly newspaper. Now, you have to understand, I had virtually no experience. I had written a few essays for the San Francisco paper. I did not know anything about journalism. But this was a time before gay life was professionalized, right. you know, before you had, you know, um, first of all, before you had mainstream news organizations hiring out lesbian and gay reporters and editors, and before you had advertisers who were willing to support lesbian and gay publications, Right. So it was almost like an activist or volunteer situation. Mm -hmm. And so I was put in charge with absolutely (laughs) no qualifications of actually a very large newspaper that was right at the cusp of a change in American society. Of course, we covered the um, Chicago, the city of Chicago's attempt to pass a lesbian and gay rights ordinance and it failed one year and then it passed the next year and right at that time the publisher of the paper was also persuading large companies like the major department store in chicago and you know large liquor brands to to advertise and so 
unbeknownst to me and purely by luck, I happened to be covering the community at a moment when the community was entering the mainstream. And so that was um, an incredible moment and an incredible piece of luck in in my career. Did So I'm assuming then it was that assignment that really fueled your passion for journalism, because that's what you've been doing your entire life now. Yes, from that point on, I had never thought about going into journalism when I was in college. But this this stroke of luck that put me in charge of this of this newspaper, um, you know, really did change things. And so after that is when uh, I was hired by the Village Voice and I was hired by them um, to do a lot of things, but mainly to cover the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and then I went from the Village Voice to the Wall Street Journal, where I was an investigative reporter and a foreign correspondent uh, for page one of the Wall Street Journal. And I was at the Journal for 11 years. And then I went to ProPublica, which is a right. nonprofit investigative reporting outlet. And then I launched and led for five years the investigative reporting team at BuzzFeed News. And now I'm a professor of journalism at USC. Holy cow. It's so incredible, the pathways and the journeys that that take place. You have these, I'm sure you did perhaps have a vision about what you thought your life was going to be when you walked off that graduation stage. And when you look back now, it's got to just be incredible. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, I feel, I mean, I do feel very lucky um, in many many ways. I mean, things things were difficult at points, obviously. Everybody goes through difficulties and has disappointments and whatever, but I feel just incredibly lucky on, on many, many, many levels. Yeah. Um, I, I do as well. I mean, I feel very fortunate. I've had a lot of great opportunities so far, and it's it's been a great journey. But I remember graduating from high school in 1981, and I remember the dawn of the AIDS crisis. And that ended up being a very, very important and large part of your life uh, as a journalist. But I also remember seeing those flyers up about this strange, deadly disease. And it scared, it scared the crap out of me, frankly. Um, what do you remember about those early years? And then talk about how you ended up doing this incredible Pulitzer Prize winning piece on AIDS in Africa. Well... So I, uh, as we as we talked about in high school, I had walled off, psychologically walled off my sexuality, and so I sort of came of age at college mm-hmm. and came out in college, um, and I had heard of AIDS but hadn't really, you know, heard very much. And my my boyfriend at the time, who was a law school student, um, he. He said, well, you know, that's only only promiscuous people get that. Well, of course, that was not true. But I didn't really, you know, I didn't really think about it. And for people who are listening, it may be hard to recognize this today after HIV and SARS and the the resurgence of, of drug resistant tuberculosis. But in the late 70s, and up until the advent of HIV, the entire medical community, 
and the entire developed world looked at infectious diseases as something that had been conquered. Mm -hmm. We had vaccines which had literally wiped out polio. We had vaccines which had tamed smallpox. We had antibiotics which had cured some of the most feared diseases in the history of the world, the bubonic plague and tuberculosis, and all of those diseases were considered done with. And so part of the reason that I think I didn't really think very much about AIDS when I first heard about it was because the mindset, both in the scientific community and therefore in the larger community, was like, well, maybe it'll be some sort of a small disease, but nothing that major. And it was only when I moved, uh, when I left college and moved back to San Francisco and went for my first HIV test because I wanted to know, was I positive or not, that the magnitude of it suddenly came home, hmm. that this was a disease where, as I started reading about it and learning about it, the vast majority of the people who contracted it died. I went and got tested in San Francisco and was counseled by people who had obviously seen many people with the disease. I helped to construct the first AIDS hospice in the city of San Francisco. So I was working with people who were affected by the virus, either infected or who had people who had suffered you know, the, the loss of friends. I joined the gay and lesbian swim team where there were people who you know, had lost lovers or members of our team who got sick. I remember visiting uh, the hospital bed, the hospital room with a swim team member who had gone blind from CMV, cytomegalovirus, um, and I uh, helped by by volunteering to go to the homes of people with HIV and clean and cook for them and that sort of thing. So I very quickly got an education as to what exactly AIDS meant, um, mm. and uh, within a very short time after graduating from college any sort of nonchalance I had about infectious disease was banished forever. Wow. And so talk about how you ended up reporting on this and the experience in Africa. Well, when I got that job in Chicago, I was in charge of a gay and lesbian newspaper for, you know, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States. And so we covered a lot of things. But one thing we certainly covered was uh, HIV. And because of my experience in San Francisco uh, doing volunteer work uh, and, you know, because of the activist community that was very, you know, um, which was growing at that point and beginning to develop um, ACT UP, the famous AIDS activist right. group, um, was just being born at the time that I was editing uh, Windy City Times, the Chicago Gay and Lesbian paper. So we began to cover HIV, um, both medically and politically. Um, and at first, you know, quite frankly, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I had to learn about the science of HIV. I didn't, I wasn't a science major. I, I, I needed, I needed to do crash courses, which I did by, 
by reading and by interviewing and then by attending scientific conferences. And slowly I began to, you know, learn more about HIV. And then when I was hired by the Village Voice, I began to attend the major AIDS conferences to report on them. And here's how it happened that I decided to go to Africa. In 1996, the so-called antiretroviral drugs, the drugs which control HIV and now allow people with HIV who have access to drugs to live a healthy and normal life, those drugs were approved for general use in 1996. And they were incredibly effective. Yeah, turn the for epidemic around, were really, literally, right? Yeah, and for people who were literally on death's bed, or death's door, they would, they would recover, and, and doctors called it the Lazarus effect. And so this was happening in the United States, this was happening in Europe, people were, um, people, this was clearly, these drugs were clearly effective. Now, they had side effects, there were issues, whatever, but they were saving lives. Two years later, 1998, the World AIDS Conference was held in Geneva. And it was held at one of these gigantic conference centers. You know, thousands of people would come to these World AIDS Conferences. And there were two basic wings to this conference hall. And in the center, where you had to walk through to get from one wing to the other, was the area where the pharmaceutical companies had set up their booths hmm. and they were justifiably very happy. They had like created these drugs, which were keeping people alive. They had done something magnificent and they were also raking in a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So they had amazing booths. They had two story booths serving cappuccino and pastries. <laughs> oh my God. And, there were people from Africa who had to walk by these displays of these very effective drugs that were absolutely not available in their countries. And I interviewed a young man, he was not even 20, who had a week before lost his mother, a famous AIDS activist from Zimbabwe. And I said, what's it like to walk by these advertisements for drugs that could have kept your mother alive? And, you know, he was very soft-spoken and very dignified, but he said, it's like a starving man passing by a feast. Mm. And I thought, I have to write about this. And so to the credit of the Village Voice, which was a weekly New York City newspaper, they were willing uh, to send me to Africa. And I went to Africa for, it was supposed to be six months, but I got drug-resistant malaria, so it ended up being seven months. Oh, good Lord. Um, and, uh, and that's how I came to write that, that series. And obviously your, your work was somewhat well-received because you ended up on, on 60 Minutes, which is... You know, so we're, we're the first time that I had seen you since high school. I remember that Sunday night. I used to watch it every Sunday night. 
and I think I was doing some stuff around the house, and I heard them introduce uh, the story and talking to this guy named Mark Schoofs, and I said, Mark Schoofs from Campolindo? Really? And there you were. <laughs> so you, you told me earlier that you learned a lot from that experience being on 60 Minutes, and I'm curious, what was their approach like with you, and, and how was your story and your research and your revelation received? Well, that was a, a very interesting story. I think that story came out around 1995, and it was a story about um, uh, gay men. So this is now almost 15 years into the epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. And there, uh, of course, there were you know most gay men knew that if they wanted to avoid contracting HIV. That they had to practice safer sex or use a condom. But many gay men were not always using condoms. And this was a surprise at that time to many people. Um, now, when we think about it and we look worldwide, there is no population anywhere in the world that has consistently for years and years and years used condoms for sex every single time. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in Africa. It doesn't happen in Russia. It doesn't happen in the United States. It doesn't happen. But at that time, that was something still new and, um, and, and surprising to people. And so there was this producer at 60 Minutes who reached out to me, saw some of the work I had done on this topic, at the Village Voice reached out to me to say that they wanted to do a story on it. And, you know, I knew the power of 60 Minutes. People who are listening to this who may be younger may not understand how powerful 60 Minutes was. You know, there were really, at that point, there were, there were more than three networks, but there were basically only three That's networks. Right. There, you know, the, the Internet did not exist. You know, people, the news organizations had at best rudimentary websites that nobody went to. There was no Facebook. Uh, you know, the, it was just a completely different world. And 60 Minutes was one of the most powerful platforms in the entire United States. And so I was worried. Like, how would they portray gay men? So often gay men had been portrayed as sex-crazed fiends, you know, this kind of ridiculous homophobic portrayal. And I realized that, like in all things, it matters about the integrity of the person who's, who's doing the story. And the producer uh, convinced me that he uh, really wanted to do an accurate and, you know, empathetic uh, portrayal of the issue. And he was true to his word. Um, and, uh, so that was one, that, so that was a, a, a quite important moment for me and mm -hmm. lesson for me. And the second thing was just realizing what it's like to be on TV. You know, they, 60 minutes is very famous for these very tight shots of just your face, you know, and they have these, you know, you're, you're sitting under lights and, Ed Bradley was the host and he was interviewing me. And I mean, it's, you know, you feel like you're on the witness stand or something, you know, it's I bet. 
It's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it was. Did, did it? Were you happy with the way it came out? I remember it being yes. you know, a really well-done yes. piece. I was happy. I, I was very happy, and I felt that. Um, y- yes, I was very happy. I thought, you know, at, for, for its time, and, and I mean, if I looked at it, I haven't looked at it in since, you know, basically since it aired in 1995, so maybe I would have a different view if I looked at it now, but my memory at the time uh, was very positive, and and at its time, it was definitely positive. Other, you know, gay and lesbian activists and 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 people who were in the trenches, uh, you know, very much appreciated that uh, that piece. So, if you were so to the producer did a good job. Good, good. So, as you look back at the epidemic and the evolution of the epidemic, really on a global level, uh, and you grade it today, how have we done? What, what kind of grades would you give us in terms of our response and progress with AIDS? Scientifically, we have done brilliantly. We have um, advanced by leaps and bounds faster than uh, in almost any other disease. And there are some reasons for that, but the main reason is uh, the dedication of science, scientists, and the skilled activism of mainly gay and lesbian activists. Mm-hmm. Politically and socially, unfortunately, the <laughs> the picture is not nearly so rosy. It is just incredible to me that there are still millions of people across the globe who do not have access to basic medical care and the now very inexpensive drugs needed to keep them alive and to keep their children from being orphaned. And even right here in the United States, there are a tremendous number of people, unfortunately, most of whom are poor and or uh, black or brown, who do not have access to good medical care. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, you still have these untenable and immoral discrepancies between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to the most basic thing on earth, which is life. And that is unacceptable. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And and I think along with a lack of medical care is also a lack of access to education. There's so much information out there about HIV, how to prevent it, with or without things like PrEP and other kinds of, of medical interventions, but there is a, a blockade either caused by, I think, a lack of finance, uh, uh, religion, and culture, where people just don't still don't know some of the basics. Yeah. No, that's true. That is true. And uh, so, you know, if you have access to medical care, you can now live a normal lifespan and a normal life. You mm-hmm. can do everything that a person who does not have HIV can do. Right. You really can. And that is monumental 
if you look back to, you know, 1993, when everybody was just dying in droves, the idea that just a few years later, drugs would be available that could give you a full life in every sense of the word full, you would not have believed it. Right. And yet here we are. The problem remains our will to make that incredible advance available to everyone. Really? And, and outside of our borders, across the world? Yep. Inside our borders as well. Sure. But definitely sure. outside our borders. Sure. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. I'm talking tonight with journalist Mark Schufs. So you won your first Pulitzer Prize for a seven-part series you did about AIDS in Africa. Tell me yes. about getting that phone call. Uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while. I actually heard about it from my editor at the Village Voice. This, these days, the Pulitzer Prizes are very, very well-protected and tight-lipped, and so it's harder to find out who won. But at that point, they leaked like a sieve. And uh, before they were officially announced, I was sitting at my desk working, and uh, the editor-in-chief uh, of the paper, Don Forrest, who unfortunately has, has uh, passed away, mm. he called me. And he, I picked up the phone, and he said in his kind of gravelly, low voice, just two words. He said, you won. Did you, <laughs> and I just... Did you have any sense about what you had won? Well, yeah, I knew it, it, it. I knew because I knew that the judges were, you know, judging that past couple of days, and you know, we knew we had entered the prizes because the paper has to. Well, I suppose you can technically enter yourself, or you can anybody can enter for you, but the way it usually works is that the paper puts in an official entry. So I knew we had been entered. And at that point, I knew that we that I was a finalist because that had leaked. Mm. Um, but I didn't really think that I would win. I mean, we were up against the Washington Post, as I recall, and I think the the Associated Press. I might be wrong on that. Please forgive my memory. Um, and I just, you know, I just assumed that we wouldn't win. So I was quite surprised. Good for you. And, and so you did some other work outside of uh, AIDS and, and reporting on the LGBT community. One of the other pieces you won accolades for was a piece on September 11th. Yeah. Um, so 9-11. So um, at, the, at the time of 9-11, I worked for the Wall Street Journal. And I had recently come back uh, from a reporting trip in Tanzania. And I had been I'd stayed up late on September 10th, calling Tanzania to sort of catch them during their business day to do a few final fact checks for this story that I was going to run. And then on the morning of September 11th, I got up early to try to catch a few more people at the end of the Tanzania business day. So because of time zones, I had stayed up late and then I got up. Mm -hmm. So I made a few phone calls to Tanzania and then I wandered out of my apartment. And I was going to get a cup of coffee. And uh, it was an election day 
nobody really remembers this, but September 11th was a local election day in the <laughs> city of New York. And I walked out of the little place where I had gone to get, uh, you know, a muffin and a, and a cup of coffee. And everybody, everybody on the street was standing still looking south. I thought, wow, there must be some kind of a demonstration. And I looked south, too, down the street. Didn't see anything. Just slightly raised my gaze. And there was the World Trade Center with smoke billowing out of it. And I remember thinking immediately, oh, there's been a terrorist attack. Really? Because I had lived through the first... Uh, World Trade Center bombing. Um, and so I went back. My partner at the time was going to be flying to New York that day. And so I called him to say, you should check the airlines because there's been an attack on the World Trade Center. So he turns on CNN all bleary eyed. And then because I grew up in California, so I know what it's like when there's an earthquake you have to make all your calls as soon as possible or the lines will get jammed. So right. I called my father and I said, you should take a look at the news because something's happened in New York and I'm going to be reporting on it. I want you to know that I'm okay. And as we were on the phone, the second plane hit. Mm. So then I got on my bike and I went down to, uh, the world trade center. Uh, and I reported and, while I was there, the towers collapsed, uh, you know, and we all ran, um, you know, to escape the, uh, the debris. Um, and I, you know, filed, uh, my reports, which were collated, uh, by, by editors and, and played a small part. And I want to emphasize this, a small part in a large, paper-wide effort and the Wall Street Journal-wide effort to cover the day's events. Um, and I reported from ground zero that day, and I also went to the hospitals because I figured, okay, they'll take all the, uh, the injured to the hospitals. And it was this most haunting sight because you would go to a hospital and there would be uh, doctors in their white coats uh, standing outside at the emergency entrance with their, um, you know, their gurneys ready and waiting for to take in the wounded. And there were no wounded. Hmm. Nobody was coming to the hospitals. And the reason as a friend of mine succinctly put it, as we stood there looking at one of these expectant but empty emergency room entrances was, you know, this is going to be one of those tragedies where you either lived or you died. Right. And that was true. Hmm. Wow. The other thing I remember about covering that was afterwards. Um, I, uh, the city changed almost hourly in the days after the attack. 
And pretty quickly, it was the 12th, maybe the 13th, I'm not, I'm not going to remember right here, but within 48 hours after the attack, all of a sudden, like, you know, like flowers after a spring rain, everywhere in the city were suddenly flyers asking for help to find the, quote, missing, unquote. So I'm missing my husband who was on the 78th floor of the South Tower. If anyone has seen him, please call me. Well, what had happened was Kinko's, the, which is now FedEx office, mm-hmm. had offered to make these posters to, for anyone for free. And so people would go and they would make these posters with a photograph of their loved one asking for help to find them, and they plastered them everywhere. So you'd pass, for example, the entrance to a hospital, and there would be 500 posters on every available surface. Wow. And I began looking at them. And I thought what made me personally so angry about that attack, and I was furious about that attack, absolutely furious, was that they had, you know, indiscriminately killed. And so I wanted to find a Muslim who had been killed to kind of rub it in their faces mm-hmm. and say, look, you idiots, you killed your own. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for people who might be Muslim in these, these um, collection of, of posters. And I saw a guy, uh, you know, from the Gambia. And from my reporting in Africa, I knew that 90% of the population in the Gambia is Muslim. So I called the number. And I reached his wife. And it turned out that this gentleman a black African Muslim man was married to a white Jewish woman. Hmm. And I thought that is America. Mm -hmm. And so I reported on her efforts to locate her husband and her slow realization over the next few days that her husband was not missing. And one of the things that she had to do was collect samples of things that would have his DNA and put them in a bag and carry them to one of the piers on the Hudson River, this cavernous building built on a pier out into the Hudson River where all of the families of people who were killed September 11th were asked to bring anything that might help the rescuers locate their remains. Mm. And in this huge building, she was interviewed by the nicest, most patient, most compassionate NYPD police officer. And as he interviewed her, you know, saying, you know, what have you brought? And, you know, no, don't put it in a plastic bag because that can degrade the DNA. Put it in a paper bag. Here you, here's one for you, et cetera, et cetera. As he's telling her this and as they're talking, the air would suddenly be punctuated by wails and screams of families who had very obviously just found out 
that the person they had been searching for was dead. Yeah. And it was at that day when she said to me, I don't want to believe he's dead, but I know he's dead. Mm. Wow. How do you think that changed you? I don't know, honestly. I think one of the things you that you have to do as a reporter or a policeman or somebody who has to come in contact with so much of the dark side of humanity is that you have to find a way to not let it um, harm you. Mm-hmm. But um, I think of that woman... Sharon was her name, uh, very frequently. And I think of the utter waste of the death of her husband and the real malice and evil that was behind those attacks. And in my mind, I also connect it to some of the callousness, uh, how shall I say this? Obviously, the ideology and the people who perpetrated this, the September 11th attacks are discreet and are their own. But there are different ways for evil to happen in the world. One is through the calculated malice of a terrible and twisted ideology like that of Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. But there are other ways that are more common. Very few people will turn to that kind of ideology. But many people, unfortunately, will turn to a certain kind of callousness, a certain, well, it doesn't really affect me, or that's them, or those people are across the border, or they don't look like me, or something like that. And so without in any way equating the people who joined al-Qaeda with ordinary people all over the world, I do think about what is my responsibility to be open to and empathetic with my fellow human beings and to walk a mile in their moccasins. Mm. There's that philosophy major, hard at work. Those are, <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Those are, it's, <laughs> a, it's, it's an important observation and 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 a very valid question to ask. So as you look back at all the stories that you've done, I mean, you've you covered some pretty incredible things. Is there one that stands out to you that you can say, this is where I've left my mark, this is the one that I'm most proud of? Um. I don't know. Uh, I would say that, you know, I, I'm proud of different stories for different reasons, but mostly when I look at my stories, I see all the ways that they could have been better. Mm. <laughs> so it's very hard for me to read something that I've written and not think, well, you know, if you had just done this. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, I, I mostly think about what could I have done more or what could I have done differently to make the stories 
uh, more powerful or deeper or something like that. Okay. How'd you end up at USC? Um, so first of all, I loved the job that I had before. I had the great, really the great privilege and honor to launch the investigative reporting team at BuzzFeed News and grow it from zero uh, to more than 20 reporters and editors. Um, and they did fantastic work. Uh, the team was twice named finalists for the Pulitzer Prize and won many other uh, prizes. And I loved the job. I absolutely did. Um, but for some life reasons, I decided that I wanted um, to teach and I wanted to be back in California. Mm -hmm. I'm married to a wonderful man whose family is here in uh, Los Angeles. Um, and uh, we decided that we would move back. And I had a friend at USC who encouraged me to apply. And the more that I uh, looked at USC, the more I liked it. And I have always loved the idea of mentoring, not just the idea, I've always loved to mentor and to teach. And so that's how I decided to take that job and to move across country um, and to live here in Los Angeles. Well, it's our gain here in California to have you back. And uh, I, can well, I, can, I can definitely identify with you in terms of that passion for teaching. It, it, is, it is a passion and it is a gift. And it's, uh, I, I can't imagine not doing it. I mean, what do you see for your future? What's the next step for you? Or is this the final frontier? You know, I, I think you never really know. Um, my father just had his 89th birthday. Mm. Um, so, you know, my mother unfortunately has passed. My dad is still going strong, uh, sharper than attack. And, you know, I may have many, many more years in front of me. Uh, so at the moment, I'm just concentrating on teaching to the best of my ability and uh, to, yeah, that's what I'm really focused on and focused on, you know, my relationships and the people that I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have as friends and family and, and trying to savor those moments. Good for you. Did, did you ever imagine back in 1981 that you would be married? No. No. It wasn't even on the no. radar, was it? And I just think that that change has been remarkable. Yeah. You and I have seen, I'm, you yeah. and I have witnessed a lot of history, important history to us. Yeah. Uh, if you look back at just the last 50 years since our birth, 50 and some, uh, it's been the most miraculous progression of civil rights, gains, change, cultural, social change that I think has probably happened. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I was, you and I, I presume, were both born, if not in the exact same year, but pretty close in 1962. So in our lifetime, the Civil Rights Act was passed, giving, yes. ending apartheid in the United States and giving African Americans full legal rights. Now, obviously, socially, things still have a long way to go, but they are so much better than they were, uh, you know, and what I see at USC 
is a tremendous number of women being so much more confident and so much more accepted in STEM fields or athletics than they were when we were growing up. And I obviously see the advance for LGBTQ people. I mean, one of the things that I find amazing is that many of my straight friends are as at least as passionate about LGBT rights, you know, as my gay friends. I mean, right. my straight friends were so happy to come to my wedding and to celebrate that day with us. Um, and that's just like a great feeling. It is. And so isn't yeah, it? we've been very lucky. Good for you. Good for you. We've been talking with Professor Mark Schuess and my friend from high school. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Greg, and thank you so much for having me on the show. So great to catch up with Mark tonight. You can learn more about him by following links on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Just click on Show Notes at the top of the page. Well, that wraps up our hour and our first show of the new decade. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime... Have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to you. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. And I rise up, I rise like the day, I rise up, I rise unafraid, I rise up, and I do it a thousand eight times again. And I rise up, I like the waves, I rise up, in spite of the ache, I rise up, and I Silence is quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe. And I know you feel like dying, but I promise we'll 